Well, amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do find Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, continuing our walk through the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 16, and we'll read the whole chapter together. We're breaking it down and working through it, section by section, verse by verse, line on line, looking at what God has to say, not merely man's opinions or, or my thoughts, but what the Lord has spoken in his word. Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And she and Sarah and Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she would conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please." Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahoi, Beer Laha Roy, and it lies between Kedesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old. When Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of God. I don't know how anybody can say that the Bible isn't exciting. I mean, did you just hear what, what we just read there? I would say the problem often isn't the the problem isn't ever the Bible, but it's those who try to teach it without careful thought or reflection or without an eye to what is going on. I mean think about the passage before us, this reads like one of those late night reality shows, doesn't it? 
Hagar's this man, or Abram is a wealthy guy, and he's got all this power and influence, and here he's caught between two women, one of which amounted to being basically a maid in those days, and we've got uh, one of the first cases in the Bible of having a baby mama drama, don't we? All of this going on, these two women, there's, there's this child in the middle, and we are struck going, this is supposed to be the people of God, the people of hope. And look how they're acting. God had promised that he was going to make a great nation, and he was going to bless the world, and it's going to be through them? Through a dysfunctional family of sinful, messed up people, God was going to bless the world. And this text confirms to us a simple reality, and that is that God's ways are not our ways. That what we might think is wise is often foolish, and that the ways of the world often conflicts with the ways of the world, of the ways of the Lord. In fact, if I could offer a central point this morning, it would be this. Human wisdom often fails but God's word never will. Human wisdom often fails, but God's word never will. See, in our wisdom, it would make sense just to throw in the towel on sinful, messed up people. And yet God's word tell us, tells us that he doesn't do that. That God's people, the church, Christians have always been broken people. And this doesn't excuse us, but it does explain how the people of God can often hurt us. I mean, who hasn't been hurt by somebody in the church before? The pastor would have his hand. He might have both hands up at some point, right? Even as far back as Abram, the people of God have always been people in need of grace. Let me offer a word of encouragement. If you've ever been hurt by the church or by somebody else in this room, let me be the first to say, I'm sorry. And that the word of God would say that the people of God need the grace of God too and that life with God's people will require regular forgiveness and grace. The Bible says over and over and over, it calls us to forgive one another, to pray for one another, and my favorite Put up with one another. Put up with one another to embody as the people of hope the message of hope that we preach. The people of God will hurt you. I don't know if you wanted to hear that when you came here on a Sunday morning, but the people that you are here with, somebody here either has hurt you or is going to hurt your feelings at some point. Because it's not just that they're sinful people, it's that all of us here are folks that are messed up and broken. The people of God will hurt you, but God calls us not to throw in the towel, but to look to Him in hope. And throughout this passage, we see the vanity of human wisdom and the vanity of human solutions alongside the infinite value and wisdom found in God's Word. And this passage really is broken up into two scenes or two conversations. The first, a conversation between Sarah and Abram, and the second, a conversation between Hagar and an angel. So let's look at scene one. You've got Abram and Sarah. Scene one, Abram and Sarah. And look at what verse one says. Sarah, who at this point is named Sarai, 
Verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. We've seen as we've working through Genesis, this is the big overarching problem of Abram's life, is that God had promised him offspring, but he had had no children yet. And Sarah, though, through everything that has happened to Abram, through being rescued, through all of these things that have happened, remains barren. And here's what we're told then, that she had a female servant, whose name was Hagar. And this should be interesting to us for a few reasons. There is an Egyptian among the Hebrew people. And it's likely that she joined them when Abram, when Abram if you remember, he left Egypt from under, uh, from when he had rescued Sarah from, from Pharaoh, and he left with possessions, both financial and servants, back in Genesis 12, verse 10 to 20, And if you remember, after the whole fiasco where Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's court and Abram lied about it, Abram was rescued out through a plague and got to take all this stuff with him, Hagar was likely one of those servants that he got to take out. And we should also note the name Hagar is interesting. The Hebrew word gar is the word sojourner, and ha just means the. So her name literally means Hagar, the sojourner. And we can see all this. You've got a woman who's barren. You've got this young Egyptian woman over here. You can almost guess what happens. Look at verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of his wife. See this. Sarah is telling her husband to go have a baby with the maid. And hear this, men. This is not good advice to listen to. Husbands, it is generally, it is almost always a good idea to listen to your wife. But in this case, happy wife, happy life was not the right philosophy to have. And it's a warning to us because everything Sarah says is true. She wasn't able to have a baby. It's likely that he, they could have had a child through Hagar, and there was actually an ancient practice of surrogacy through servants in the ancient world. So this seemed rational and logical to these people. Sarah could present all the true facts and yet still give bad advice. Advice can be factual and yet still be immoral and unwise. And Abram really should have known that, because remember, he had that whole sister-lie situation back in Egypt. And in scene one, we see that Sarah tries to take matters into her own hands. Sarah tries to take matters into her own hands. And we're told that Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Consider just the intentional parallel here. When in Genesis was the last time a husband listened to the sinful suggestions of his wife? Well, back in the garden, right? Adam and Eve, right? Back in Genesis 3 in the garden. Look what it says there, Genesis 3, 17. And to Adam, God said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree, which I said, and he goes on to say, just like Adam listened to the sinful suggestions of Eve, Abram listened to the sinful suggestions of Sarah, And the application here, men, don't don't go home and go, well, the pastor said that I don't need to listen to you. No, no. 
The application isn't don't listen to your wives. The application is make sure God's voice is primary in your life. Make sure God's voice and God's word is number one in your life. Abram knew that what he was doing was not only unwise but sinful, and yet he does it anyway. Look at verse 3. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Abram and Sarah had waited 10 years or more for the promise. And here we see them trying to rush the promises of God. How often are we like this? They wanted everything on their own timeline, not on God's timeline. So they took matters into their own hands. Abram laid with Hagar as a wife. And I think the language is interesting here because it again mirrors the way that Eve gave the fruit to Adam. If you look at these texts, it's almost like they're, they're intentionally paralleling this. But we also notice that it never actually tells us that Abram married Hagar. It's just kind of interesting. The text has been used. You can read a lot of different commentaries like, like I did this week talking about how well, Abram might have been practicing polygamy here. And yet the text seems clear that Abram, over and over and over, is mar- that Sarah is Abram's wife and Hagar is Sarah's servant. Over, over, over again. In these short 16 verses, Hagar is called Sarah's servant in one form or another over eight times. And never once, never once is Hagar called Abram's wife. So just like when Sarah was taken by Pharaoh into his his harem when she stole her away, throughout all of that, she still remained Abram's wife through it all. And so through this, Abram is not with the woman, his wife, he should have been with, but he's with this other woman. And notice how the first scene concludes, verse 4. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived... And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And to no one's surprise, this doesn't go well. The whole situation creates tension between Sarah and Hagar, and Abram's in the middle. Hagar's pregnant, and rather than getting the peace that Sarah wanted out of this, it only brought contempt. Isn't that how sin so often is? Doesn't sin impact us just like Sarah was impacted here? We think through our own wisdom and our own schemes, we can bring about the life and the peace that we long for. One pastor called Sarah's decision here her covenant scheme. Because God had made a covenant in chapter 15, right? He'd made all these promises, and remember, he cut open these animals, and he passed through the animals going, hey, I'm going to make this happen And yet here she said, I don't really care what God has promised to do. I'm going to make this happen myself. And friends, we all do this all the time. She thought she could do this by bringing matters into her own hands. And look where it gets her. And we so often try to bring out our own happiness and peace through our own 
efforts. And consider that this doesn't bring Hagar peace either. We don't really know what Hagar was thinking through a lot of the situation. But we see that after the pregnancy, she despises Sarah for this. And that word despises is worth our attention because it's the same word back in chapter 12 that's translated dishonor, where it says those who dishonor you, Abram, God says he will dishonor. And here we see Hagar dishonoring Sarah and by extension dishonoring Abram, but we also see Sarah dishonoring Abram by blaming him for everything. Did you look at verse 5 again? She said, may the wrong done to me be on you. Abram, this is your fault. In other words, Abram, it's your fault that she's pregnant and that I'm unhappy about it. And both women ultimately are dishonoring Abram, even in light of this Genesis 12 promise. And the irony here should be deep. Consider this. Moses, right, wrote Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the first audience would have been Israel wandering in the desert. They had left Egypt. And while they were wandering in the wilderness, you'll see this throughout the book of Exodus. These people wanted to go back into Egypt often. They thought Egypt was so often the answer. Maybe they could save themselves by deserting God and his word and going back into slavery to Egypt. What they thought seemed wise in human terms, God saw as vain and futile. And I could almost hear Moses reading this account of Sarah and Hagar and stopping at the end and going, don't go back to Egypt. Egypt can't save you. Sarah thought Egypt could save her, didn't she? She thought Hagar, the Egyptian, was going to bring her everything God promised. But our human attempts fail and falter to do that. And even consider Hagar, the Egyptian, who is a servant to the Hebrews, whereas in the days of Moses, it would be the Hebrews who would be servants to the Egyptians. One day the children of Sarah were going to be servants to the people of Hagar, and we see, Her and we see Sarah here being an abusive, ungodly ruler over Hagar. She is like Pharaoh in this whole circumstance. This is not a flattering light to paint her in at all. And that's just scene one. After Sarah de deals harshly with Hagar, Hagar flees, and that's where we get to scene two. Scene two, Hagar and the angel. Hagar and the angel. Out in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord comes to her. And this is what the angel says. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. It seems if we know where Shur is, from what we know of, of ancient geography, Hagar was headed back to Egypt. She's trying to save herself and bring herself the abundant life by going back to the place she was rescued from. But Egypt wasn't God's plan for her. Egypt couldn't save her either. And look what happens next. The angel of the Lord comes to her and says this. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Stop. The word 
The name Ishmael means he hears. And then it continues, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So God was saying, hey, Hagar, you're going to have a son. And there's some interesting promises concerning this son here. First, God extends a promise through Ishmael that sounds a little bit like the prior chapter, that Ishmael will be blessed with fruitful offspring. And then we see, verse 12, that he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. That, doesn't, that isn't a compliment to give to somebody. And it does mean partially that rather than being a slave, he's going to roam free and wander. But we also see he's going to be in conflict with those around him. And he's going to be somewhat of an outcast from other people. And this marks the life of Ishmael, as we're going to read more about him in the future, as he settles east of Egypt after the death of Abram. He's going to leave the family of Abram to go live out on his own and therefore leave the promise that God made. And the scene concludes this way, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And to make it all the more interesting, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Wild stuff here, but we get a quick, significant scene. And in scene two, the main thing we should take away is that God took Hagar's situation to heart. In scene one, Sarah took matters into her own hands. In scene two, God took Hagar's situation to heart. Because Hagar does what the angel of the Lord says and returns to Abram. Unlike Sarah and Abram who were disobedient, we see, consider this, an Egyptian slave as the one who is obedient in the story. That's an incredible contrast for them. In fact, she even calls on the name of the Lord, and in that moment she recognizes that the Lord is with her. Ishmael's name signifies that God hears her, and we also see that God sees her. The Lord is called him who looks after me in verse 13. And the well she's by, it says it's called Beer Lahai Roy. And if you have a little footnote in your Bible, you'll see down at the bottom, that means the well of the living one who sees me. And for the God to see isn't for him to simply be a passive observer like you or I might be. But rather, this means that he is sovereign and active in her circumstance. It is recognition and trust in God's promise that he will deliver. Consider what Exodus 3 has to say. Exodus 3, God speaks to his people and he says this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmaster. See and hear, I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land 
to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God, by seeing and hearing, takes Hagar's situation to heart. And Hagar is exhibiting the sort of faith that Abram and Sarah should have. She abandoned her self-salvation project and fled to the Lord. She forsook what seemed wise in her own eyes, at least in this moment, for what the Lord spoke to her through the angel. Imagine if Sarah had understood what Hagar understood here. Imagine if Sarah had understood that God heard her in her affliction, saw her in her loneliness, and was looking after her even when she didn't have all the answers. And friends, God doesn't just see and hear Hagar. God sees and hears you in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your affliction. Friends, hear me. God may feel far from you, but God is so incredibly close to all of us. The incredible thing about the God of the Bible is that He is both transcendent, above all things, and yet imminent, so incredibly close to every one of us. How many of us, in whatever we're going through, simply need to call on the name of the Lord today? Whether that's to take our first step toward Jesus, or whether it's to to have Him and call out to Him in the midst of our trouble, or whether we've been trying to live as the Lord of our own lives, or we're walking in ways we know we shouldn't, God stands ready to hear because God sees and He cares. And as we consider how Genesis 16 applies to us, I see three applications for us, three ways that human wisdom proves vain and God's word speaks a better and clearer word. See these three contrasts with me. First, human wisdom says, save yourself. God's word says, saved by grace. Human wisdom will say, save yourself. Be a good person. Come to church enough. Check all the boxes. Save yourself. But God's word says we are saved by grace. In fact, the Apostle Paul brought this point home in a letter he wrote to the church in Galatia. And the Galatian Christians were a group of people who were struggling to trust God and to walk by faith. They were instead trying to take matters into their own hands. They were trying to walk in obedience to the law, pursuing flesh over faith. And Paul writes to this community of faith, and he says, Genesis 16 is a picture for you. Genesis 16 is an allegory for you to consider. And here's what it says. Here's what Galatians chapter 4 says. Galatians 4, 21 says this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abram had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. This is Genesis 16, right? But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, he says, or as a picture. The Apostle Paul is allowed to do allegory, right? He, he, under the inspiration of the Spirit, can help us understand this. And he says, these women are two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. In other words, he says, 
if we're to understand this as a picture for us, Hagar is a picture of anyone who tries to seek salvation through works, through law-keeping, through taking matters into their own hands. But Paul says in verse 31 of Galatians 4, So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In other words, we're not people who approach God through law-keeping. We can only approach Him by grace. In other words, the lesson from Sarah and Hagar is a lesson in how we approach God. Through Hagar, Abram sought God's promise and salvation through his own effort and obedience. Whereas through Sarah, God would have to keep his promise solely by grace. Solely and completely by grace. Human wisdom says save yourself. God's word says saved by grace. Grace. The second application is that human wisdom says, I've messed up his plan, but God's word says, I've got a plan for your mess. We might think, I've messed up God's plan for my life. I can never walk in what God would have me walk in. And yet the word of God says that God's got a plan for your mess. God's got a plan for your mess. Consider, this might have been a detour in Abram's journey, but God was still going to keep his promise. God would give Sarah in his wisdom what she tried to get through her own wisdom. God would give Isaac the child of promise to Sarah, and it was only going to come through a miraculous, supernatural word. Just as God had to speak the world into existence, God would need to speak the miraculous birth of Isaac into existence. And this promise, like most of God's promises, cannot be rigged or manufactured through your own efforts. Child of God, hear me. While your sins and mistakes have consequences, you can never thwart God's plan. And so the encouragement from this is to stop wallowing. Sometimes we mess up and we just wallow and wallow and wallow. The application is stop wallowing, wash your face, repent, and move forward. Sin doesn't have to have the last word in your life. God even uses our biggest failures in order to display His incredible grace and glory. Some may say, Preacher, how can I know for sure that God will use my sinful, my dark moments, whatever it might be, for His glory and my good? And I would call you to look to the cross. There on the darkest day of human history, the hope of the world shined forth. There at the cross, sinful men hung the sinless Son of God on a wooden cross. And simultaneously, God made provision for the sins of the world. There, though Satan and the soldiers sought to destroy God's plan, there the plan of God was actually done. Here's what Peter says. He, he says this, his sermon at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has fallen down, and they're having church there on the day of Pentecost. And Peter says this, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus, notice, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See it. He says, he says to his audience, you killed him, you were responsible for it, yet it was God's plan all along. That human responsibility and divine sovereignty can actually coexist together in a mysterious way up above us, 
and that the darkest day of human history could not thwart God's plan for the world. Look at the cross. God's human wisdom would say that you've messed it up. But God's word says that God has a plan for your mess. And then finally, the third application for us is this. Human wisdom says you are what you've done. God's word says you are what Jesus has done. Human wisdom would say you are what you've done. And God's word says you are what Jesus has done. Consider that though Abram and Sarah blew it big time, this isn't the moment they're remembered for. Our culture is so awful. And I hope we reject this notion that is so popular in our world of remembering people at their worst. Friends, that isn't the attitude of grace. That is not a Christian attitude. Our culture leaves people eternally marked by the bad they did, rather than recognizing that history is often so complicated. People are so complicated. There is so much good and bad mixed in that that's why the grace of God is so necessary. We should not sit on our eternal judgment seat, but rather leave judgment to the Lord. Consider even Abram and Sarah. Most people could mark Abram and go, hey, well, look, you remember, no matter what Abram did, you remember that one time he slept with Hagar? And yet, throughout the Bible, he is remembered as a man of faith. Over and over. And that God justified him for his faith even before he ever did this. That's such good news. We're often so prone to mark people and remember them by what they've done, but God's word would call us to remember them for what Jesus has done for them and forgiving their sins and transforming them. Consider Sarah for a moment. We don't often give her enough attention, but most people really remember her for this whole encounter. Well, look at her bad advice she gave to her husband. And yet, Hebrews 11 says this about her. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Notice, she is actually remembered as a woman of faith, even though the moment we often remember her for is her most faithless moment. Or even more amazing, Peter says something about Sarah. Look what 1 Peter 3 says. He says, This is how the holy women who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter says, ladies, you want a role model for faith? Consider Sarah. Yes, Sarah, the one who made covenant schemes, he says, is a holy woman who he says we should remember because she hoped in God. And even remembered as a woman who loved and submitted to her husband. That certainly is the opposite of the Sarah we see in chapter 16, isn't it? Hear me, your present isn't your legacy. Your present failures and sins and your past failures and sins are not what you'll be remembered for if the cross is your hope. 
See, the cross takes all of our sins, even our big ones, and plunges them into the depths of the sea. And because Jesus not only died, but also rose, the scripture says he raises us through faith out of the grave and into new life. Whatever it is, it might have defined your family. It might even be your reputation here on earth. But heaven's memory is a whole lot different. Eternity looks through the lens of the cross and the empty tomb. And some of us need to, need to, one, let go of how we're holding other people and marking them because of their sin. But even more than that, some of us need to let it go in ourselves. Some of us have marked ourselves in such a way as, well, I'm just an adulterer. Or I'm just a guy who struggles with pornography. Or I'm just somebody who gets angry. And we just constantly tell ourselves that when the cross declares over our life forgiven and justified and your sin, as we saw as our men's, were, as our men's group were studying in Romans chapter 4, your sin no longer counted against you. Human wisdom often fails, but God's word never will. That's our point as we consider Hagar and Sarah's life. There are so many ways that we may be trusting in human wisdom in our life. I want you to consider in what ways are you believing even good, even what might seem like factual advice that really isn't wise or moral or good. What human wisdom are you trusting in? Whether about your eternity, maybe you think, well, I'm a good person and good people go to heaven. When the Bible says, no, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that sin has merited death and that the only way to life with God is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're believing human wisdom about marriage and thinking, well, it doesn't really matter what, what the world says or even what the Bible says about marriage. We're just going to do whatever we want. If we just want to continue to have sex outside of marriage... That's okay, because it's about my happiness, right? And yet the Bible says that, hey, the one who wants to play with fire close to his lap, don't be surprised when you get burned. Or even human wisdom about your family. That, hey, well, I don't necessarily need to pray for my wife or do Bible study or talk to my kids about Jesus because... Others will do that. And yet the Bible would call us to take responsibility for, yes, the discipleship of our children, but also the, the children around us to consider them. Or even about ourselves. Many people believe different things about themselves, who they are, why they're here. And the Bible would say that you're here to be reconciled to God through Jesus, to know him, love him, and love your neighbor as yourselves, friends, human wisdom talks a big talk, but it'll leave you walking lost on the way. It'll leave you out in a wilderness, just like Hagar was. May we not be like Sarah, who looks to our own wisdom, trusting in Egypt to save her. May we not be like Hagar, retreating back to our former slavery, but may we believe the promise of Psalm chapter 1. It's as blessed as the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
and sits in the seat of scoffers and stands in the way of sinners, but rather whose delight is in the law, in the wisdom of the Lord, and who meditates on that day and night. In these next moments, I would call you to respond by confessing before the Lord, Lord, I have walked in my own wisdom, or in the wisdom of my buddies who I knew I shouldn't have listened to, and confess that before Him, and come to Him going, Lord, I'm trusting Your Word, both what it says about who I am apart from You, and who it, and who it says I am in You, and I'm stepping forward in faith. Maybe for the first time today, you would take the step out of your own wisdom and into the promises of God through repentance and faith. If you do that this morning and you call out to Him and you admit that you're a sinner and believe that Jesus is the Son of God and confess that He is Lord and Master of your life, He'll save you right where you are. And if you do that this morning, I want to talk to you. Others would love to talk to you after the service about what that means, but all of us should renew ourselves and take this step away from our own wisdom and trust and into the wisdom of the Lord. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, we are people who have walked in our own way. And the Bible warns us in the book of Judges about a people who did what was right in their own eyes and the destruction that that brings. Lord, we confess that we have walked in our own wisdom and in our own way and that now we are looking to your word, looking to what your word says about our sex life, looking to what your word says about our marriage, about our family, about who we are as your people turning away from thinking that we know what's best for our life and confessing that you are Lord and Master. We believe that you are the Son of God and that you came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead, that we could have everlasting life. And we're turning and trusting in you now, whether it's for the first time or for the 400th time, and seeing that you will receive us. You are far more good at grace than we are at sinning. Now that is so good to us. Whatever human wisdom may say, may we look to your wisdom for our hope and our stay. And we pray this on Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, man.
all-wise God who has given us his word. And as we prepare to leave today, I just encourage you again, thank you for uh, your giving. We've got baskets, as always, by the door. Or, as I mention every week, we've got online giving and text to give available, and you can find that info there on the screen. But I want to read this from Romans chapter 11, the doxology that's there that says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.